Welcome to the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, the editor of New Money Review. Our guest on this podcast is Andreas Antonopoulos, a computer scientist, author and public speaker. He made a flying visit to London last week and I was lucky to have the chance to sit down with him for half an hour during the Crypto Compare conference. Andreas is not only one of the world's leading experts on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, he's also a political thinker and philosopher, as you'll hear from the interview that will start shortly. His energy levels, both on and off stage, are also something to behold. Paul Gordon, who organises the popular Coin Scrum meetup in London, referred to his visit as Hurricane Andreas passing through London. I've always been struck by Andreas' ability to combine technical expertise he is the author of the two of the most widely read programmers' guides to Bitcoin and Ethereum, with an appeal to a much broader audience. The topic of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies can appear full of jargon to anyone that's trying to understand them. So I started our chat by asking Andreas to put Bitcoin, this new form of digital money, into a historical context. And specifically, how innovative is Bitcoin from a purely technological perspective? So I think it's it's important to realize that uh, Bitcoin was not the first digital currency uh, or even the first currency based on cryptographic primitives. Um, it was the first that succeeded and managed to survive. Um, I've been interested in the cypherpunk movement that has been involved in developing these technologies since the early 90s. And uh, there were many systems before that were built using various cryptographic techniques in order to achieve currency as a digital artifact that operated on the internet. They all suffered from the fact that they were too centralized and therefore fairly easy to suppress by governments that didn't like their existence. Uh, Bitcoin was the first one to be decentralized enough to survive and continue to survive um, despite the attempts of many to shut it down. So um, it's a combination of technologies that existed before, so cryptographic primitives, peer-to-peer networking, which you know we've had since Napster, really, um, the uh, uh, mechanism of proof of work that pre-existed uh, Bitcoin, um, various concepts in distributed systems, uh, hashes and Merkle trees, which were invented decades before. And um, blockchain technology, which it's itself you know existed in various forms before. So hash-linked tables had existed before. What's unique about Bitcoin is the synthesis, the synthesis of all of these technologies into a cohesive idea that allows us to really establish consensus across great distances without giving centralized control to anyone. So this is the idea of having rules without having rulers, uh, the idea of being able to achieve a common truth every 10 minutes on average, um, without anybody being able to control the system or take over the system. How, um, how uh, significant then is that discovery? Obviously people within the cryptocurrency and Bitcoin community understand how important that could potentially be. People within the financial community, the bankers, I, I see gradually understanding how significant this could be, but how well understood is that you know, more broadly within governments and uh, within society as a whole? Uh, not very well understood yet, but I think it's going to have a profound impact on society. The first level is really um, democratizing access to basic financial services on a global basis, um, access to payments and currencies on a global basis as a choice of citizens, regardless of what their government wants to do or doesn't want them to do. 
um, an access to basic financial services without any vetting or authorization, simply by uh, being a human being, you have access to these fundamental capabilities. That's an important, very powerful uh, capability, and it really is simply an extension of the internet itself. The internet democratized access to communication. It also democratized access uh, to the ability to produce and publish content uh, and be a creator of content online, and um, brought the world together. And it has been abused in many different ways by many companies and governments. But at the same time, it's also brought great opportunity and freedom to people. Mm -hmm. Cryptocurrencies uh, represent the next stage of that evolution because they do the same thing for money and payments that uh, the internet did for communication. Uh, it, it's, it's tempting to see this as separate from the internet, but really it's simply an evolution of the internet. This is another layer of technology that gives the internet a new capability, which is to do the same thing for finance. But there's more things coming after that, because this isn't just about finance. Um, it's also about systems of governance and trust, uh, things like voting and how you make uh, community decisions on different scales about how to govern uh, various parts of society. So having a technology that allows us to arrive at a common consensus while uh, trusting in the outcome without having to trust in each other, um, because the platform itself enforces the rules, can have profound impact on voting, for example, uh, whether you're voting for uh, a corporation uh, as a director or shareholder, or uh, a small municipality or a local association, whether you're voting what to do with the bake sale from your school board, all the way up to voting on critical decisions uh, we face as a species on this planet. You know, obviously these are a lot further in the future, but this is going to have a profound impact. Um, and it will allow us to re-engineer uh, society around modern institutions based on communication protocols, that have so far been uh, managed by hierarchical institutions based on process, procedure, and human organization, uh, the institutions we built in the 18th and 19th century to scale our society to a bigger degree. Now we can do that with communication protocols. So in that sense, this is an invention for the next century or, or more, if we look at it in a historical perspective. Absolutely, yes. And it's going to birth other inventions. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, governments and sovereigns have jealously guarded the right to print money in the past, and it's not far from here that I think 200 years ago they used to execute people for uh, for, coin, for either coining their own money or counterfeiting or even uh, taking parts of coins and uh, yes. clipping coins. And uh, they still do in some countries. Uh, and and so, um, is it? Am I, am I correct to sense that the the real clash between governments and this new technology in whatever form it takes is still ahead? Because that surely is a is a is a huge. Uh, potential conflict. Yes, it is. And you know, at the end of the day, this is going to be a test. Uh, not a test for cryptocurrency, it's a test for government. Um, because governments that operate by the rule of law and represent the principles of the Enlightenment, as we like to call it, the free societies, um, uh, have a, at least proclaim to have fundamental respect for the freedoms of their citizens. Um, and fundamentally are, uh, are there to represent the consent of the governed. And therefore, if their citizens want to transact freely, 
um, and express themselves freely and associate freely with each other and assemble freely and manage their affairs freely as free people, um, then the government has no business telling them what currency they can and can't use, how to conduct their private transactions, or even punish them for engaging in perfectly lawful activity without proven uh, cause or suspicion. Um, that these are bedrock principles in free societies. So the idea that the governments are going to fight their own citizens over their ability to conduct free transactions uh, really becomes a test for the governments themselves. Do they really believe in these freedoms they proclaim? And we've gone too far down the road of building these ideas that um, the only way to achieve security in our societies is by uh, giving our governments the power to do totalitarian surveillance of our financial affairs, of our movement, of our activities on a daily basis. That's a very dangerous path. And I'm hoping this technology will allow us to correct that course, uh, and if necessary, to seize back the freedoms that have been taken from us. Um, but governments have a lot of technologies at their disposal to monitor whatever we do online, to mm -hmm. they have facial recognition technology to monitor our movements. Surely it's not a stretch to imagine that they're going to start looking for traces of cryptocurrency activity. If they want to, they could... They're they could, already they, doing they, that. They, so they could highlight you know, the people... I heard earlier an estimate that you know, maybe less than a, you know, fewer than a million people might control any significant amount of Bitcoin. So uh, they, they could presumably just round those people up quite quickly and... and uh, not in free societies, they couldn't. Yeah. Um, and yeah. you know you should be really worried about whether your government can start rounding people up like that um, yeah. for participating in perfectly lawful activities. Yeah. Um, you know, let them try. And then again, of course, they can do a lot to do surveillance on these things. But at the same time, this technology is evolving to uh, to offer people more and more privacy and strengthen that privacy. And part of the reason we haven't got as strong privacy as, as we want to, or at least as I want to, in these systems is because that privacy hasn't been directly threatened, or not in an obvious way. Uh, but as soon as governments threaten it, the systems are going to evolve to become much more stealthy and anonymous. The question is, do governments want to accelerate that development and evolution towards stealthy and anonymous systems, or would they rather play with the thing they have now and, and try not tread lightly? So, so what you're saying is that, that, that some of the privacy technologies that are, that are being tested out on maybe less widely used cryptocurrencies like Zcash or Monero could effectively be implemented into Bitcoin later on if that were necessary. Oh, absolutely, they could. And, yeah. and at the same time, people could migrate to use, uh, you know, in the places where their privacy is threatened, to use the systems that protect their privacy more strongly, and that would achieve nothing from the side of government. Uh, because they would not be able to regulate this activity. Uh, what it would achieve is pushing people into systems that are even less transparent. Um, so again, you know, would you rather have, as they say, the devil you know, or push the situation in a direction where you encourage even more stealthy and anonymous systems to develop and strengthen? Um, you know, the bottom line is that financial privacy is a fundamental human right, and that there are more people in the world who need that, because they are dealing with uh, totalitarian and abusive and oppressive governments, um, than there are regulators willing to write laws and able to enforce those laws. So um, I am optimistic that 
at a fundamental level, this is a fairly asymmetric fight, where there are far more people who need these freedoms and are willing uh, to fight non-violently, but uh, through their choices of technology to secure these freedoms. Um, then there are people who actually have control or are able to exert control uh, to suppress these freedoms. So it's a David versus Goliath story. Um, yes, it's a six billion Davids versus a few million Goliaths. Mm. Mm. Well, I, I recently read a blog by uh, Casa, which, which is a firm that I think specializes in cryptocurrency storage, uh, where they described how best practices for storing cryptocurrency had evolved during the, the first decade of Bitcoin's existence. And it struck me that the people's understanding of what safe storage means has evolved quite a bit and is continuing yes. to evolve. And yes. things that we assumed were, that were safe three or four years ago might, not, might no longer be safe. Even hard wallets are not necessarily the... Uh, you know, they can, they can, every, almost everything can be hacked, uh, as, as, uh, as someone put it. And so doesn't well, that, almost doesn't, everything can be hacked, but yeah. you know, we've got to realize that um, it depends on what scale you're operating. So it is true that people can hack individual Bitcoin wallets. Uh, it is also true that people can very easily atta uh, attack and succeed in hacking uh, concentrated wealth in exchanges, um, in individual exchanges at the fringes of Bitcoin. And yet over 10 years, no one's been able to hack Bitcoin itself. Not because of lack of trying, despite the lack of continuous attempts. Every single day, 24 hours a day, thousands and thousands of people attack Bitcoin from every possible angle you can imagine, and they fail to succeed. They fail to succeed other than disrupting operations on a small scale for a small period of time. You can disrupt it part of the time, part of the way, but you can't disrupt it everywhere all the time. But if you're talking about those six billion Davids against the few million Goliaths, now you, we're, we're now, what you're suggesting is that we put the onus on those six billion people to store their personal wealth safely. And, Eventually, but and the, they have one Isn't that a tall order for them? Because people are going to make mistakes. They're going to, say, as someone put it to me, you know, they're, they're going to press the, some grandmother's going to press the wrong button and send her life savings to somebody in Vladivostok who's put a phishing email on their, you know, on their email. Yeah, so. absolutely. And we've got to develop better practices for that. But the bottom line is that it's a lot easier to secure, uh, to have individuals secure six billion wallets in six billion different locations under six billion different implementations of the software, than it is to secure the savings of. Uh, you know, a few million people stored in one location under one custodian that is far more vulnerable. Uh, and again, the question is, who are you securing it against? Because the problem with centralized systems is that while um, it's, it's possible to make a bank that um, can secure the savings of millions against being robbed by armed robbers who come through the branch door, uh, at the same time, that same bank is much more vulnerable to being robbed by the bank director who has the banking license and control over all of those funds, or the government through inflation, um, or various other forms of indirect theft. So the bottom line is that um, different risks can be addressed in different ways. What Bitcoin brings to the table that is special and different is the idea that security is more powerful if you decentralize control. If there is no single place where you can hack, uh, it's a lot harder to hack. It's the same as 
if you have a bunch of cash in your wallet, yes, you can be robbed. But a single robber can't rob everyone in London at the same time. To do that, they'd have to break into a bank where all of the money is concentrated. The same thing applies in Bitcoin. If you have Bitcoin in your wallet, um, yes, you can be individually hacked, but a single attacker can't hack all of the Bitcoin wallets everywhere at the same time. Whereas banks are much more fundamentally vulnerable to what is called systemic risk. Um, and the individual can't really protect against that. Most of the people around the world don't even have the privilege of having access to a bank account, let alone have to worry about that. So you're confident that the technologies available to the average user will, will improve and it will become easier for well, people to... It's already to, improving. To... Uh, yeah, it's a continuous process of improvement. Mm -hmm. and we've seen that happen with every technology. At mm -hmm. first, the technology is difficult to use, difficult to understand. It requires adopting new practices. And, and gradually over time, the technology gets easier, but also society adapts to new words and new concepts. Uh, and after a generation, nobody remembers the time when it wasn't so. Does that though imply the emergence of new trusted intermediaries? Because Bitcoin itself and other cryptocurrencies are trustless systems. They assume that you don't have to trust the person you're dealing with. But don't we need, then need to have custodians or wallet providers that are, you do have to trust? to? to, to I don't think we do. Uh, I think we can evolve the technology in such a way that we can change the very nature of custodial relationships. So, for example, let me give you a simple example that already exists today. And you were talking to one of the companies that is doing similar things. Um, within cryptocurrencies, there are technologies called multi-signature wallets. What multi-signature wallets allow you to do is disperse the control over a wallet over multiple participants. We use a term called K of N. Uh, to describe these multi-signatures wallets, where N is the number of total participants, and K is the number of participants who have to come together to sign. So, for example, we might say that a wallet is a three of five multi-signature wallet, and what that means is there are five identified participants, or identified, identified through their keys, not identified as individuals, of whom three need to present proof to the network in order to execute a transaction. Any three out of the five can come together. These systems benefit from a number of really interesting principles. One of them is that if you have less than the quorum K, less than three in this particular case, effectively you have no control. So if you compromise two of the keys, it's exactly the same as having compromised none of the keys. So what does it mean to be a custodian there? Um, in fact, in those systems there is no custodian. None of the individual par participants are custodians in and of themselves. They're each partial controllers. And that partial control requires participation of the others. Um, secondly, um, that gives you a, a degree of safety and resilience. If you lose two of the keys, still fine. You can use the other three to make a transaction and build a new system where you have all five and you can continue to operate. These systems can also be used where you don't necessarily need to have five individual participants. You could have one person control five keys through five different devices. So, in order to do a transaction, you need your smartphone and your laptop and the ring you're wearing on your finger, which is actually a signing device, and or and your watch. Um, and these three devices need to come together in order to execute a transaction. But you also have two other devices which are offline and stored as backups, so that if you lose one of your signing devices, you still have resilient. 
These are programmatic solutions to custody and control that we can implement in these systems. And this is still very early days. There's all kinds of interesting things we can do in this realm of programmable money. And um, I don't think we need 19th century traditional views of custodians, fully trusted, fully risky custodians, in order to solve the problems of individual security, backup, survivability, and resilience of these decentralized systems. Instead, we can use the decentralized systems themselves to solve the problems that they introduce, while ridding ourselves of the problems of the 19th century full trusted custodians that we have today. Or, an, or a notary or someone who handles wills right. or, or even property transfers. It could, yeah, everything absolutely. could be changed. Property yeah. transfers are a great example. So in property transfers today, in order to establish trust between buyer and seller, we use escrow. The problem is the escrow is a full custodian of the money for the entire duration. They also take enormous risk by being a full custodian of that money, and therefore they charge two or three percent of the transaction to, to offer that service. That same service can be done in a two of three multisig. The two of three multisig is one in which the three participants are the buyer of the real estate, the seller of the real estate, and the escrow agent of the real estate. Now, two of three can come together. Here's the beautiful thing. The escrow agent never has custody of the funds. In fact, their signature alone can achieve nothing, and they can't run away with the money. They're also taking much less risk in this particular case, because they have to work together with one of the two other parties, either the buyer or the seller. So that's one advantage, which means they can do it a lot more cheaply. But here's the other beautiful thing. The buyer and the seller already have two of the keys. 99% of all real estate transactions go off without a hitch. Everybody agrees, the property is delivered, and the payment is made. Now, if buyer and seller fully agree, they can execute the transaction without involving the escrow agent at all. The escrow agent can sit back and relax. They only need to engage in the very tiny percentage of transactions that go awry. And in those cases, they have to take a side and either co-sign with the buyer or co-sign with the seller. And they can't do anything on their own either. So really, we can revolutionize these systems. You can have pooled escrow, where you have multiple escrow agents who have to come together and decide by committee. We can have jury systems of escrow, where you can collaborate with 20 of your neighbors. Uh, and they can protect the security of your real estate transaction. And in return, next time they have one, you can serve on their escrow jury for their retail uh, for their real estate transaction. We can really create some fascinating um, systems of control that are flexible, that are secure, and also that do not depend on any centralized authority. Bitcoin operates on a proof-of-work consensus mechanism, which requires a lot of expenditure of energy to secure the network. Mm -hmm. Some people have portrayed that as, a, as something very bad. Other people turn it around and say, well, actually, this is a, a good thing because it means that you're converting energy or electrical energy into something valuable, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a basically a source of security. Where do, you, where do you stand on that, and where do you stand more broadly on the different consensus mechanisms that have been discussed for uh, cryptocurrencies? So for the time being, the only consensus mechanism that operates at huge scale with the ability to protect hundreds of billions of dollars uh, without becoming centralized is proof of work. So until we see another one operate at similar scale, we can't really talk about how secure it is. Um, these are systems where 
the proof comes from exposing it to all of the adversarial risks of a real environment with real money at stake. Um, the energy use uh, itself is significant, but it provides a very significant benefit. It provides a globally immutable ledger of transactions that can serve uh, and provide security, even against concerted attacks by multiple nation-state powers. Uh, that's a very high bar of security. It's the most secure system this planet has ever built. Uh, is that a good use of energy? Um, that's really a market decision. Uh, and I think offering judgments on what is and isn't a good use of energy should really be left to markets. Because if we start deciding what is and isn't a good use of energy, use, not production, um, that's a dangerous path. One person, I think Christmas lights are a monstrous waste of energy. And to other people, they represent the cheer and spirit of the season. I'm not going to judge what they do. What I do care about is how is that energy produced, and how many of those costs are externalized onto society. If we really care about the environmental impacts on energy, what we should be doing is regulating the production of carbon in our atmosphere. That is an externality that we pay for as a planet, um, and has serious impacts on the environment. But the uh, production of carbon from solar power or wind power isn't significant. It's minuscule. Um, and in many cases, because uh, the consumption of energy that is required for Bitcoin is completely portable, you can do it anywhere, these uh, facilities gravitate towards the cheapest sources of energy. The cheapest source of energy in an economic environment will always be the energy that cannot otherwise be consumed for useful practices, basically what is called waste energy. That is energy where the production facility produces more energy than is being locally consumed, and the rest of it is basically going nowhere. Now, if you can bring a Bitcoin mining farm into that environment and use that energy, what it does is it subsidizes the process that produced that energy. And if that process is an alternative energy mechanism, it subsidizes it, therefore reducing the cost of solar, wind, uh, hydrothermal and other forms of energy, uh, which means that the capital expenses of building more solar plants um, are reduced and amortized over a shorter period of time, which encourages the production of more solar plants, which actually greens the planet. So let's not make snap judgments. I'm not saying it's all good or all alternative energy, um, but it's something where the, the market gravitates towards good sources. What we should be doing is taking the external cost of producing carbon and applying that to the cost of electricity. If a certain form of electricity production produces harmful byproducts into the environment, that energy should cost more, and then the market will gravitate away from it very, very effectively. And we're not doing that in many places. Uh, Market-based solutions to uh, carbon footprints are much more effective and have proven to be much more effective than regulation, and especially regulation of consumption of energy, not production. You know, there is billions of gigawatts of energy falling on the planet from solar power that do nothing, right? And if you consume them with a solar panel, um, the, trust me, the sun is not running out. Uh, we, we don't use more sun if we put a solar panel under it versus if we don't. Um, so not all energy consumption is bad. At the same time, we have to look at what is the energy consumption for printing billions and billions of pieces of paper or running massive data centers 
um, in order to do uh, fraud protection and transaction processing for the credit card payments we have today. Yeah, and presumably the externalities of, of bailing out the banking system every 20 years when it when Or the externalities crisis. of using massive amounts of debt driven by inflation to pay for giant war machines that are the greatest polluters on the planet. So uh, I don't want to simply say, but what about this other thing? But we have to look at the big picture. You know, if you're really concerned about these environmental impacts, being able to reduce the impact of inflation and the ability of governments to print money so they can engage in war is actually going to have a better environmental impact. And that's one of the things that cryptocurrency does. Yeah. Andreas, thank you very much for your time. That's been a fascinating interview. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate it.